Well, good morning. Uh, while you're turning in your Bibles to the shortest book of the New Testament, the book of Third John, uh, the book of Third John, uh, I'll just kind of give you a little un- background on what TMAI is. Maybe you've never heard of the Masters Academy International. In fact, when I preach in churches, I always ask the question, just raise your hand if you've ever heard of us. So let me try that here. Have you ever heard of TMAI? Excellent. I never get that many raised hands. Uh, could you take 30 seconds of time and tell everybody everything you know about TMAI? All right. Well, TMAI, good. TMAI essentially uh, is a consortium of schools all over the world, about 18 countries. We're adding a 19th country this year, which is in Myanmar. And we are much like the Master's Seminary. In fact, uh, every school that we have has to have a mas- two Master's Seminary graduates that, uh, that start it and are there on ground. So what we do is we train shepherds, pastors, how to preach God's word uh, in their own languages. And in many cases, they can preach in several languages, which is really important because now we're reaching some unreached people groups. I was just in Asia at our missions conference, our mission summit for our Asian leadership team, and we went around the room and talked about how many languages our students and our graduates can preach in. And some of the, the smallest uh, um, dialects and little tribes where, where the gospel is being preached, where our guys are trained to pa- pastor and preach much like our pastor here, Tom Pennington. So uh, that's the Master's Academy International. We have about 8,000 graduates around the world, and we have about a currently almost 3,000 current students around the world. I just got back on Tuesday from a long trip to Uganda, where we're looking at setting up a new school there. Actually, the school is already in place, and they're asking us to come alongside them and help them. And then many of you know Fally Ravangi. I spent a week with Fally down in Madagascar, just got back from that. And we had the kickoff for his school. Uh, it was a big deal. We had no idea how big this deal was going to be. He, um, he invited the president of the Senate to be there, which would we, we would call the equivalent of our vice president for the whole country. And in fact, the guy that was there is now the president of the country here starting, I believe, next week. And he gave a synopsis of what the school would be doing. He heard the gospel preached loud and clear and affirmed it and said, this is what our nation needs. And so in Madagascar, we have, and I met with them, 21 students from all over that country. Some of them, it took them three days to get there. And they will return into the bush villages and maybe even places where there aren't villages to preach the gospel. So be praying for those places. Be praying for those students. Ask that the Lord would use them in a way that, um, that allows them to communicate with clarity the intent of the word. So with that, let me open a word of prayer, and we're going to talk about the, um, the book of Third John this morning. Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful for you that you would allow us to be here uh, to be exposed to a man named Gaius who is a lover of the truth, and he lives the truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would minister to us through his life Help us to be those who abide in the truth, to walk in the truth, to preach the truth, and to support the proclamation of the truth even to the uttermost parts of the world. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you should have some notes handy there. This isn't as robust as I would normally give an Omega Sunday School class. It's just the outline with really the, the central theme of the, the book of Third John. So this morning we're talking about being in the trenches with your missionaries. And if I could point my finger at each one of you, I would point it directly at you. I'm saying your missionaries, missionaries from this church, may not even have to be this church, but it's people who are out there who are living for Christ and taking the gospel to the nations. So we're talking about being in the trenches with your missionaries. And just as we begin to get our heads around 3 John, we'll read it here in a moment, but let me just ask you a question. What do the Apostle John a businessman, a church leader, and a man of God all have in common. Let me rephrase that. An evil church leader is one of those. Three of these men are an, are an extraordinary account of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, while the fourth man, the fourth one, does everything he can to sabotage the Great Commission, and he's the leader of the church that Gaius is a part of. 
As we follow the Apostle John, a beloved businessman and a missionary supporter by the name of Gaius, and this evil church leader by the name of Diotrephes, and the personification of truth, a brother named Demetrius, we're going to see that the senders, as senders, steward their resources towards the Great Commission. They are, as we read in verse 8, they're considered fellow workers with the truth, as if they're out there on the front lines with their missionaries in person, although that's not always possible, seldom is. So they're fellow trench dwellers with their missionaries, those that support them. On the other hand, if believers work to produce an income and are hindered or worse, forbidden from subsidizing the Great Commission, then the Lord Jesus Christ is offended. And there's, a tr- there's big trouble brewing for that kind of a situation. So the Great Commission requires a global supply chain with individual believers just like you and me that are integral links within that chain. We are all, in that sense, very important to the expansion of the gospel to places all over the world. Missionaries are one link, but they're not the entire chain, if you could just get that word picture. So my question for you this morning, and maybe I'll ask it again later, is is what is your link What is your integral part in the Great Commission with your missionaries? How are you a part of strengthening their supply chain? I would say marketplace Christian, those of you who work out in the world, ask yourself, how might my God-given skill sets, my gifts and abilities, uh, be a link to couple the Great Commission, Great Commission efforts for the advancement of the gospel? How might God use you in such a way that you've never dreamed possible? Maybe you've you've never really prayed about what you do for a living and how that might fit into the Great Commission. Today's a good chance to be thinking about that. You see, disciple-making requires coordination efforts between the missionaries and their senders. We don't just write a check and say we've done our thing. We don't just pray and, and that's it. All those things are important, don't get me wrong, but how might we be integrally, integrally involved with what they do? I'll give you an example. As I mentioned earlier, TMEI has about 8,000 pastoral students and over graduates in over 80 nations to equip their own people to make disciples in their own languages because you and I, there's a lot of places we can't go, but we can train local people to do what needs to be done. So third John remind you that those who are undergirding their efforts with prayer and finances are considered their fellow workers with the truth. They're in the trenches with them, meaning they're together for the same cause, for the same purpose. So let's read the text. I'll be reading in the New American Standard. I'll make references to the LSB a couple of times, the Legacy Standard Bible. But I'm going to begin in verse 1. And today, uh, we're going to do a complete New Testament book in one sermon. They thought about asking Pastor Tom to do this, but then our missions conference would be about 80 Sundays. So we're going to do it in one sermon today. All right, let's go. Here's what John writes. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth That is, how you are walking in the truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, 
Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many other things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and with ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. In the late 1700s, William Carey was struck by the importance of the Great Commission. So he pressed church leadership to send missionaries outside of their own country of England. What was their goal? Their goal was to reach India with the gospel by teaching them how to study and apply God's word. It's the same goal we have here at Countryside. In 1794, at the age of 33, Carey was the first to put skin in the game. And he was reported to say, simply, I'll go. He's a young man. I'll go. Andrew Fuller shouted, there's a gold mine in India, but it seems as deep as the center of the earth. Who will venture in to explore it? It's a great question because nobody had ever gone out before. And Carrie's willing to go. You know what Carrie said? You've, you've heard this before, many of you. He says, I'll go, but you've got to hold the rope. You can't let go if I'm going to India. You have to take care of me. You have to be praying for me. You have to, you have to be a part of my, 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 my missionary supply chain. He asked the marketplace believers to help him. He obligated them to be his fellow worker with the truth, so they engineered this supply chain by linking themselves to one another to reach India with the gospel of Christ. They all took responsibility. Carrie was the one who was going, but everybody was involved, the whole church, the whole group of people who committed to him. You see, 3 John is about holding that rope. Remember, there's a pastor, there's a student, there's a, there's a missionary, and, and perhaps his wife and his children on the other end of that rope, and they're reliant on the Lord to work through you and me to take care of them, to pray for them, support them, supply their needs. We would say, be as courageous as the missionary on the other end of the rope, and fasten yourself to that rope, and hold on for dear life. Because they're holding on for dear life. So I ask you, whose rope are you holding? Whose rope do you have a firm grasp upon? The central theme of 3 John, in your notes there, John and Gaius teach you, teach us, how to love missionaries. As, as a fellow worker with the truth, Gaius models really three requirements for you to fulfill the Great Commission, in the trenches with your missionaries. So the first one is to pray in the trenches, critical, verses 1 through 4. Support in the trenches, verses 5 through 8. And, of course, the last one, heed warnings in the trenches. It's dangerous out there, verses 9 through 12. Let's do the first one, pray in the trenches. John prays for Gaius's personal contribution to the Great Commission, Prayer and the purpose of prayer is considered in the first four verses. In verse 1, you'll glance down, you'll see that in verse 1, John loves Gaius in the truth. You'll notice here, if you haven't already, that the word truth is a key theme. It's repetitious. In the Greek language, repetition means critically important. And the word truth appears in this brief letter a total of six times. Six times out of a mere 219 words. Must be important. Verse 2. Some view John's prayer only as a simple first century greeting, like, dear Gaius, blah, blah, blah. Just a, just a simple first century, how are you? But we mustn't let that minimalize the seriousness of John's petition for his much-loved friend Gaius. I want you to notice that you're going to see two principles at work in verses 1 through 4. First, the prayer itself, and second, the purpose of John's prayer. He's very clear about it. 
In verse 2, John refers to Gaius as beloved. Repetition. He calls him beloved twice, for this is the second time. And he says this. He says, I'm praying for you. Don't you just love those four words when somebody comes up to you and says, brother, sister, I'm praying for you. And you know they mean it. John is an encourager. His prayer isn't a, you know, once and done quip lobbed to the throne of heaven. He persistently intercedes for Gaius, which is the way the the Greek language is, is patterned here. It's a persistency. He doesn't give up. John is an encourager. John's prayer list contains two items, two things. How does he pray for this businessman? Maybe he was a farmer. In any case, he generated income sufficient to take care of missionaries. First, for Gaius to prosper in all things. Do you see that in the text? I'm praying that God would prosper you in all things. This is a well-known theme throughout even the Old Testament. Even if you were in part of uh, Omega recently, we, we just finished the book of Genesis, and we read in the book of Genesis, chapter 39, that God prospered Joseph. God prospered him. And so it makes sense that John would pray to, uh, that, that pray to the Lord that Gaius would prosper. There's a second, the second part of the prayer. It's for his health to remain strong. I want you to notice the extent to which John prays for this rope holder's prosperity. Verse 2, John prays for God to prosper Gaius to the extent, the extent that his soul prospers. Uh, that's to say, I want your prosperity to be as expansive as your salvation in Christ, your, your spiritual soundness. He prays for the Lord to continually, repetitiously cause Gaius to thrive. This prayer has been used by the health, wealth, and prosperity purveyors out there for a long, long time. It doesn't fit that context. He wants him to be prosperous because he's taking care of missionaries. And so he he wants the Lord to continue to supply his efforts. John pleads for the Lord to prosper Gaius so that he can be an effective missionary sender and encourager. So he asks God to free up Gaius so he can financially support pastors to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry on the foreign mission field. Wow. Do you ever pray for those who are the senders? God, encourage them. Help them to hold on tight. Lord, prosper them in such a way that they might continue giving towards this effort. What does John mean by prosper in all respects? Well, since in verse 3, Gaius is a practitioner of the truth, it makes sense to pray for him to receive more prosperity from God in all things so that he might continue to advance the truth. There's an example of this in the uh, Matthew 25, the, the parable of the talents, multiplying talents to continue to thrive and to do the work of the Lord. The word prosper here in this text is only used four times in the entire New Testament. And get this, the shortest book of the Bible has two of them. Shortest book of the New Testament, I'm sorry. Has two of the occurrence. And and they're right here in verse 2. That word prosper literally means a good road. A a, a good road or to have a good journey. In Romans 1.10, prosper is seen by the word we would use for success as in Paul making a successful journey to Rome. He wanted to preach the gospel in Rome, and so he's saying, pray for me that I would be prosperous, that I would succeed in getting there. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul tells the people to save money as they may prosper, as they may succeed. Why would he pray that prayer in that context? So that he could advance the gospel in Jerusalem. Somebody has to underwrite the ministry He's going to preach, but somebody's helping him, a whole church. The prayer isn't for Gaius to amass wealth for his own notoriety, his his own pride. That's not what it is at all. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, let's just read verse 3 again. That word for is so important. It's explanatory. It's going to tell us why he's praying this way. For I was 
Very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in the truth. So the word for there explains the purpose of the prayer in verse 2. The reason John prays for Gaius' success is because Gaius was literally in the trenches with these missionaries. He loved them. He cared for them. He had a reputation, didn't he? You see, his, his business or his source of income enabled him to serve as a fellow worker with the truth in verse 8. And John was exceedingly joyful about the news that he kept receiving from other believers. He had a reputation. They talked about him. He heard, John heard firsthand reports about Gaius' actions, what Gaius was doing for these missionaries. You see it there in verse 3. How he, he heard how his deeds testify of the truth. Your actions, what you do, are a documentary of what you believe. And that's Gaius. He didn't have to hold up a banner and say, look how important I am. People kept saying that Gaius was taking care of them. They couldn't not share those things. Verse 3 again, John's terminology indicates repetition. In other words, several people on many occasions continually testified of repeated occurrences of Gaius' love in action. Yes, he was a lover of the truth, but he was a doer of the truth, and people recognized that in his life. Gaius didn't hide his love for the Great Commission. He rolled up his sleeves and jumped in. So it makes sense that John has extreme joy for this disciple of his, Gaius, in verse 4. John was elated because reports kept coming in about how people under his pastoral care consistently walk in the truth. They know it. They believe it. They live it. They, they memorize those passages of Scripture, and then they find ways to implement it, to be an encouragement to others. Clearly, clearly, John was in the trenches with Gaius as Gaius was in the trenches with the missionaries that came through town. His prayers honored the Lord, and as a result, it led to significant advancements towards the Great Commission. Pastors, elders, missionaries, TMAI students, who's in the trench with you? Who is holding your rope? Who's praying for you and helping you and, and encouraging you and your family, your wife? Who's in your trench? How fervently do you pray for those that send you? And for those of you who are senders, are you sharing your prayer requests with your missionaries? Because they want to hear what's going on in your life too, that they would pray for you. How fervently do you pray for the senders, your fellow workers with the truth, for the Lord to prosper them so that their ministry flourishes in the collective trench, if you will? So the first requirement to carry out the Great Commission in the trench is prayer. And I'm glad that he mentioned it first because it's critical. Do you know fellow workers with the truth? Are you praying for them, for their careers, for their businesses, for however it is that they produce an income, that God would continue to bring them the increase so that they can do this model that Gaius does to take care of those who are taking the gospel to the world? John's second requirement to carry out the Great Commission with missionaries in the trenches is supporting them. Support in the trenches, verses 5 through 8. We've already read it, so I'm just going to go through it. Verse 5, we know that John recognized how Gaius constantly or consistently labored to accomplish remarkable things for the brethren. That's the brothers in Christ. And he identifies them as strangers, men he didn't even know that he took care of. As I spend time with believers around the world, especially this past summer in some pretty remote places throughout the Philippines and Africa, Uganda, Madagascar, people that I've met in a lot of cases for the first time, I'm at home with them. They're strangers. I've never met them before, but they take care of me. They don't expose me to dangerous places or inordinately dangerous places. 
They're strangers. I'm a stranger to them, but they love and they care. Verse five, I want you to focus on that word accomplish. There's gold in that word, and we're gonna mine it. The word accomplish is important. This word informs you of the reason that your work is critical, a critical link to making disciples of all the nations. What do we know about this word accomplish? In the ESV, you would, if you're holding an a English Standard Version Bible, you're going to see the word efforts. Uh, in the NIV, you're going to see the word doing. Uh, it appears as accomplished. Um, and, and the work that you do in the Legacy Standard Bible. It's talking about work. The Greek translation for the Hebrew word for accomplish is fascinating. It appears in Genesis 2.5 and in Genesis 2.15, you would recognize this as the word cultivate, as an Adam cultivating the ground. Just as importantly, it appears again in that same context. Moses uses it in Genesis 3.23 for the work that he used to do outside the garden after they sinned. Man will cultivate the cursed ground through painful toil in Genesis 3.17 and 19. That's the idea. This is hard work. Uh, Gaius was accomplishing by doing hard work, hard labor to comfort these missionaries. We find the word accomplish in 1 Corinthians 4.12 where Paul says we toil working with our hands. This is vigorous exertion. We, we think about missionaries as working hard overseas, but do we think about ourselves as working hard to care for them? This is what Gaius does, vigorous exertion. Well, let's bring this all together. Watch how it works out in verse 5. Gaius strenuously works, and he strenuously toils to support strangers. The Greek word there, and you would recognize this, is xenos. Xenos. We, we, we get that word xenophobia, fear of strangers from it. Xenophobia is not what Gaius had. He took care of them, these strangers. Gaius toiled to support them. He toiled to support brethren unknown to him, missionaries, gospel preachers who gave up everything they had so that God would employ their spiritual gifts to do what our church does here, to train the saints to do the work of the ministry with the word of God. That's it. Jesus describes faithful people like Gaius at the sheep and the goat judgment, again in Matthew 25, Gaius is like the sheep because he faithfully cares for Jesus' missionaries, as though caring for Jesus himself. Matthew 25, 40. You see, seeing them hungry, Gaius feeds them. Seeing them thirsty, he gives them drink. He shelters them in his home. He was a model missionary sender dedicated to ensuring that the unredeemed hear the word of God in a land that he may never visit, nor you and I may never ever visit, but we're praying for the people to accomplish what God has given them, diligently on our knees doing the hard work alongside of them, even though they're so far away. So he was a model missionary sender dedicated to ensuring that the unredeemed hear the word. I don't know about you, but I have never been a rock climber. Anybody ever been a rock climber? None of you. Good, then I can speak with authority. <laughs> I've always been an extreme sports fan, and at my age now I tend to recognize the foolishness of my youth and dangerous things that I did as I'm reminded every morning. But have you ever seen the crazy guy dangling on the other end of a rope from a cliff and you can't tell how far down he may be to the ground, maybe a few thousand feet? Just kind of dangling there with the rope attached to another guy who's praying like mad that his, his equipment holds out, holds up, is, is strong enough to keep him and the other guy at the other end, other end of the rope safe? You know, if the climber falls... What happens to the rope holder? Uh, is he also yanked over the edge of the cliff, or does he depend on his equipment and fight like mad to save both their lives? You may recall a beekeeper by the name of Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were the first men to actually make it to the very top of Mount Everest 
29,035 feet. It was the year 1953, 70 years ago this year. There was a time when Hillary plunged into a deep icy crevasse, but his rope was tied to Tenzing. Wow, how'd you like to be Tenzing? Even as Hillary descended rapidly, holding the rope and fighting like mad to keep both these men alive, Hillary's weight made Tenzing, Tenzing's body bounce down the icy slope and careen off edges of this sharp ice. He could have cut the rope to save his own life. Instead, as his body careened across the ice, he held firm. Just before tumbling into the abyss, he pierced his axe into the ice and was able to dig his heels in to firmly hold his body in place, not just his body, but the one on the other end to keep him alive. He saved Hillary and himself from bone-crushing death. I want to say to you today that Gaius is a much greater hero than Tenzing because he supplied church-sent missionaries to advance the gospel that saves people from God's wrath for eternity. And oh, by the way, these were strangers to him. But he knew that there were churches that were sending them on the way, and he wanted to care for them. Oh, but Gaius remembers. He remembers there's an expositor on the other end, and so he holds on for dear life. Gaius models faithfulness in verse 6. Do you see it there? Let me just read it. John writes, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Let me ask you a question in verse 6. Glance back down at it again. Who, who's the they? Who is the they? They are the Zenos. They are the strangers in verse 5. And in verse 7, they are the proclaimers of God's word who went out for the sake of the name. The sake of the name. That reminds me of Acts 4.12. Look up Acts 4.12 when you have time. I don't have time to develop it. In verse 6, these foreigners, pastors, uh, strangers to Gaius, affirmed him publicly and spoke well of him as a truth doer. He lived it. He loved it. In verse 6 again, John tells Gaius that he'll do well. Do you see it there? You'll do well to send them on their way. To what extent? In a manner worthy of God, as if God is taking care of them himself. While churches commission missionaries into the trenches, fellow workers like Gaius are delighted to jump in and assist them along the way. What does Jesus sending them in a manner worthy of God look like? I love little words. The word well, W-E-L-L there in verse six, means to send them with a high standard of excellence. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now that's a high standard of excellence laying down your life for the sheep, but, but how high? He died so that believers could live. Therefore, Gaius and all believers do well, borrowing the word from the text here, do well to send missionaries on their way with a high standard of excellence to the extent that they may die in the trenches caring for the missionaries in a manner worthy of God. That's how extensive are you willing to die for your missionary? Not that we'd be called to do that, but what if we have to go to those lengths because that's what Jesus did? They would rather perish than allow their rope to snap. John wants you to see three reasons that you, you ought to support missionaries. Verse seven. First, they go out for the sake of the name. Uh, hold their rope because they re represent Jesus' reputation. A second reason, verse 7, that you ought to support missionaries is because they refused to receive donations from those that they sought to reach with the gospel. We don't charge the mission field, the recipients of the gospel, to pay for the gospel. That's the health, wealth, and prosperity anti-gospel. The, the resources that our missionary gets doesn't come from their target audience. 
It comes from those that send them. And he understood that. Well, there's a third reason that you ought to support missionaries, and it's so that you can be their fellow worker with the truth. Verse 8. It's not the missionaries by themselves and I'm at home. It's the missionaries overseas and I am with them. Maybe not physically, but I am with them nonetheless. In verse 8, John says we ought to support such men. The word ought, in the original language there, means morally obligated. Morally obligated. Husbands. You know what the word ought means, right? Ephesians 5.28 says that you are obligated to love your wives as your own bodies. And in verse 25, you're obligated to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You are obligated to take care of God's missionaries is what John is communicating here. 1 Corinthians 4, excuse me, 9.14, those proclaiming the gospel ought to get their living from the gospel. Your support makes you a critical link coupled to the expositor's supply chain to reach the world with the gospel. As a fellow worker with the truth, you are morally obligated to pray for and support missionaries. Why? Because God has given us that obligation. So my question is, who is in your trench? Or whose trench are you in? What missionary pastor or or seminary student is on the other end of your rope that you're praying for. How secure is your grip? Are you really holding on tight, caring and loving for them? How fervently are you supporting your fellow workers with the truth so that their great commission efforts are well-funded? It takes a whole church. It takes a whole lot of people. Very rarely, in any case, does one person uphold a missionary. We're on the same team. We all get together, and you say, well, you know, what's my $3 a month worth? It's worth a ton. Because when there's hundreds of others giving $3 a month, there's support taking place. The third requirement. Third requirement is to heed warnings in the trenches, verses 9 through 12. Living up to John's reputation as a son of thunder, John's following remarks are shocking. And they're an unexpected diversion from the first part of this letter of his high regard for Gaius. Let me just read verses 9 and 10. He shifts gears away from Gaius, and he tells Gaius, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desires to do so and puts them out of the church. He practices Matthew 18 on missionary supporters. How crazy is that? So in verse 9, John introduces Diotrephes, Gaius' exact opposite. As I said, though I've never been a Mountain climber, never scaled a cliff. There's a bit of sound mountain climbing advice I would have for the rest of you novices that might think about climbing a mountain. Never climb Mount Everest with diatrophies. If you get anything from this message, no, I'm just kidding. Never climb a mountain with diatrophies. You know why? He's a, he's a rope cutter. He will send them into the abyss and be okay with that. Have you ever been in a place, say a business, at work, maybe in your family where the self-absorbed call all the shots to their own advantage? Unfortunately, the undiscerning church has leaders like this too. Diotrephes adores himself. He loves himself and he wants to be first place in everything. He's a, I don't know, a my way or the highway kind of a miserable man. You ever seen those kind of people? Unlike Gaius, as I said, Diotrephes is a rope cutter. Starting in verse 10, we see four charges against Diotrephes. Four of them. He was a slandering gossiper. He refused to care for missionaries. He won't tolerate missionary supporting church members. He refuses to allow God's people to be fellow workers with the truth. 
Diotrephes throws people out of the church even if they attempt to help missionaries. This is in the New Testament? Wow. A leader of the early church. Verse 10. When John shows up, you could say, "Uh uh-oh, son of thunder's coming. When he shows up, he's going to remember his deeds, and he's going to point them out. He's going to confront him. Deeds. We talked about that word deeds a little bit ago. It's a form of that word that we looked at in verse 5. Remember the word accomplish? Uh, Cultivate in the Old Testament? Diotrephes is a portrait of the first of seven things that God hates in Proverbs 6.17. His haughty eyes and his lying tongue are an abomination to God. In violation of the ninth commandment, Diotrephes bears false witness against his neighbors. He's an evil gossiper. There's no place in the leadership of a church for a man like this. If they don't repent, if they don't repent, they must be dismissed as factious. So we get that from Titus 3.10. This was Diotrephes. You should never have been there. I've mentioned Matthew 25 a couple of times. Sheep and the goat judgment. See, Diotrephes resembles the goats in Matthew 25. He didn't care for the strangers, the pastors, the missionaries, the disciple makers. As a goat, he withholds loving care, prayer for those doing the Great Commission. He denies them food and water and shelter. He muzzles the ox while he's threshing. We have to take care of our missionaries. We have to love them in the truth. We have to hold on tight because there's a whole family on the other end striving to please the Lord to reach the world with the gospel. So now what? As you think about diatrophies, what, what are you supposed to do? Verse 11. I love this. Verse 11, John's emphatic. He says, Beloved, Don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is the one who, the one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. So John's emphatic. You mustn't imitate, literally mimic his brand of evil. But you must imitate what is good. Here's why, verse 11. He who does good is from God. But those acting like diatrophies will never have ever nor will ever see God outside of repentance and a crying out for salvation. Those doing good display characteristics of those saved by grace through faith. Not because of their own works are they redeemed. If you want to know where to find the faithful, look no further than the supporting end of a disciple maker's rope. They're loving them, they're caring for them, they're praying for them, even though they may never met them in person. You'll see them praying for the Lord to prosper others so that others can be in the trench with you to faithfully support the work of these men. You'll see them strategizing the Great Commission supply chain, working together to try to figure out other ways to meet a need. I could give you an example even of one of the missionaries that we, I can't mention the country name, but if you go back to the table, you'll see their table there. This church got behind them and supported two additional dormitories for their students to get pastoral training. They prayed that God would give them one dormitory. This church said, we'll hold the rope. We'll be your suppliers. Enough money was raised for two dorms that was given to them so they could train up these students to reach this closed nation with the gospel. We would say, to those strategizing the Great Commission, go, go imitate them. Verse 11, you should be asking yourself at this point, what is evil? In this context, at least, doing evil shows up in verses 9 through 10. Let me just read what evil looks like. I wrote something to the church 
But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I'll call out his deeds. He's talking about unjust accusations, wicked words, loving to be first, forbidding people from supporting missionaries. You ask me what evil is, it's here in the text. Be like Diotrephes. Give the impression that there's no one more important than you. Refuse to be a fellow worker with the truth. Slander people in the church, especially your pastors and your elders and your missionaries. Let me just stop and say my experience at Countryside Bible Church, Debbie and I have been here for six years, and we will often comment to one another that not once ever have we heard any backbiting or communicating of dissatisfaction with the leadership at this church, and that is phenomenal. I go to churches all over the world, and that is not the case. We really have to be praying for our leaders here, our pastors and our elders, loving them and caring for them, not like Diotrephes who would boot them out of the church for supporting missionaries. Evil looks like mocking the rope holders and driving them away. On the other hand, here's how to have a passion, how to maintain the passion for the world. Just some ideas, I'm going to throw them out. Pray for expositors as they equip the saints to do the work of the ministry in their churches all over the world. I met with a pastor, joined him at his church a few years ago in the Soweto Township of South Africa, Sammy Labalo. When he took the pulpit, he said, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where we left off last week. And he preached that text. And he's a graduate of a TMAI training center, Christ Seminary in Polokwane, South Africa. And Sammy can preach God's word in English perfectly, but he's also perfect in Zulu and in Sutu. He reaches people with the gospel right there in his own town. And pray that God would raise up shepherd expositors to train others to preach God's word. Identify people that you can pray for and build a relationship with them so that they can share the gospel. A great idea for this church is when you, when you go into the other building, there's tables out there. And there's a list where you can put your name and your email address on there. And you're, you're saying to the missionary, would you keep me updated so I can keep holding the rope for you? So go over there. Put your name on one, two, or all of those lists. Pray about how the Lord might have you work with them. Here's a few other ideas. Model Demetrius, a personification of the truth, having a reputation for doing good. Pray that God would prosper fellow workers with the truth so that they can support disciple-making efforts. If you know of people in this church that are giving to this effort financially, pray for them, that the Lord would prosper them. Not so that they can do their own self-aggrandizement, but that they can hold the rope or more ropes. Pray that the rope holders will hang on, that they don't lose their grip because God's missionary and even his family is on the other end and they're depending on us. Communicate with them. Make sure they're praying for you. Give a real rope to a missionary at some point when you're able and tell them that for however long they're in the mission field, you're holding the other end of it and that you're holding on for dear life and you're not gonna let go. There's another book I would commend to you. This is not well known. Gospel patrons, people whose generosity changed the world. I highly recommend this book. You know William Tyndale. Most of us know William Tyndale. He's the guy that translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into the English language. He had to do it in Germany while he was on the run because the king wanted to kill him in England. How did he get those Bibles back to England? How did he flood the market with these Precious books, the Word of God. You've probably never heard of a guy named Humphrey Monmouth. If you get this book, you're going to see this story is not so much about William Tyndale, but it's about Humphrey Monmouth, the businessman who made sure that those Bibles were delivered safely. What about George Whitfield? We've all heard of George Whitfield. There was a time in his life when a member of the royal family, Lady Huntingdon, asked him how things were going with his missionary efforts, and he confided in her that he wouldn't be able to return to the U.S. He was out of funds. 
Well, she invited him over to the royal family. He did Bible study after Bible study, preached the gospel to the royal family. Lady Huntington was the one who was his rope holder. And he saw to it that Whitfield would continue to preach the gospel in the U.S. and in England. And God used a woman in a royal family to say, I am holding the rope with you. I am a part of your supply chain, and I'm not letting go. I would commend that to you. You can find it out there. It's out there. It's by John Reinhardt. Well, let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this time together that you would remind us that missions is about, of course, going. Missions is about exposing the world to the truth of the gospel that, that all the nations, tribes, and tongues would, would praise your name. And there's a famine in our world, the famine not so much for food, but for truth. We could train up more to be those who take seriously the teaching and preaching of the word of God, how this world would change for your glory, because there would be men and women and children proclaiming the truth of the gospel with their lips that don't praise you now. Father, I pray for those of us who are the senders, the ones on the other end of the rope. I pray that you would continue to prosper your people Allow us, Lord, to do well in our places of business and work and uh, the marketplace and allow us to be those who look at the resources that you give not as ours but as yours. It's a gift from your hand and to pray about how do we, how do we marshal these resources to exalt your name. R- remind us to study this book of Third John frequently when we're in doubt when we need encouragement, help us to look at John's prayer for Gaius and Gaius being a lover of the truth, caring for the Zenos, for the strangers. Lord, let us take warnings in the trenches to not allow the false gospel to be advanced, but to stand with the truth and to proclaim it with clarity and conviction because it's your word. Lord, we thank you for those in history past and church history who were the senders, the rope holders the ones who loved and cared for the strangers. Lord, help us to take heed and to take encouragement from those who go before us to be faithfully holding the rope. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.